BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, will Republicans ever turn on Trump? The issue now for Republicans is figuring out how to balance acknowledging the reality of what Trump did with whatever arguments they're going to come up with to explain ultimately voting not to convict him. Then we talk about another recent hot topic of debate, airline etiquette. There is nothing I hate more than sitting next to a strange man on an airplane. They assume that any space that you are not physically occupying belongs to them. And finally... A recommendation. Okay, you sold. I mean, I've been meaning to watch that anyway. It certainly is close to many of Michelle's interests. The Watergate break in happened in 1972, and for more than a year afterwards, Republican members of Congress stood solidly behind Richard Nixon. They called impeachment a partisan witch hunt. Ultimately, though, Republicans realized that Nixon's behavior was dragging down their whole party, and so they broke with him. Isolated and facing impeachment, Nixon finally resigned. Today's Republicans are still a long way from abandoning President Trump. But some cracks have started to show. Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania called Trump's phone call with the president of Ukraine inappropriate. Senator Ben Sass called it troubling. Cory Gardner of Colorado called it a serious issue. And Mitt Romney of Utah has gone further than any other critic of the president's. If the president of the United States uh, asks or presses the leader of a foreign country to carry out an investigation of a political nature, uh, that's troubling. And, uh, and I feel that. Um, and so clearly if there were a quid pro quo, that would take it to an entirely uh, uh, more extreme level. We've talked before about all the reasons that Republicans are standing behind Trump. And those reasons are all still there. But things do seem to be shifting a little bit. Or is that just me hoping they're shifting? Ross, what do you think? Yeah, I think something I think one thing has definitely shifted, which is that in this case, unlike in some of the intricacies of the Mueller investigation, you have Donald Trump on the record in a transcript the White House itself released saying something pretty obviously inappropriate in his own words in carrying out his official duties as president of the United States. And in that sense, I think the Republican senators who you just quoted sort of don't have a choice but to say this is concerning. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the Mueller investigation and a lot of time arguing on this show about the question of whether the election interference issues could be brought back to Trump himself. And in this case, we are there. And so the issue now for Republicans as they try and balance these facts against their political realities is figuring out how to balance acknowledging the reality of what Trump did with whatever arguments they're going to come up with to explain ultimately voting not to convict him. Michelle, I don't want to overstate it, but the polls over the last week or so haven't been particularly good for Trump. And so I've lost hope that Republican members of Congress will abandon Trump on principle because he's manifestly unfit for office. 
But I guess I am a little bit more hopeful that this is going to continue going badly for him and Republicans are going to look around and say, this guy at his peak was at 45% approval and he's falling and this is a disaster and we got to get rid of him. Am I sort of wish casting there? Can you imagine that happening? I guess I could imagine it happening maybe with someone really endangered like a Cory Gardner or a Susan Collins, taking as a given the extreme cynicism and lack of loyalty to their fellow Americans or to any sort of broader national principles. Republicans in making this calculation about self-interest are in a difficult spot because let's say Trump's approval ratings fell to 35 or 30 percent. Any Republican who breaks with them is still basically pissing off the Republican base that they need to get reelected and are probably not going to get credit for that from voters who are furious at the Republican Party and want to elect Democrats. You know, one of the most interesting things to me has been realizing how much these people who bloviate endlessly about, you know, values and religion and faith actually don't seem to believe in any kind of ultimate comeuppance. You know, they're all acting as if they believe sort of what Rudy Giuliani has said out loud, which is that, you know, his gravestone might say he lied for Trump, but he'll be dead. So who cares? In fairness, Rudy Giuliani's practice of Catholicism has never, I think, impressed anyone (laughs) with its fervency and piety. So he might not be the optimal example for your otherwise reasonable point, Michelle. Um, I mean, can I answer your question, David? I think I think you're overreading the polls. I think the polls right now show the predictable consolidation of Democrats around an impeachment inquiry once it started, that Democrats who were skeptical were always likely to get on board. And I think it shows a reaction among some independents to the sort of novelty and, as I said earlier, the difference of this particular case. But as yet, the polls I've seen are not getting you into massive public support for impeachment. They're getting you to support for the inquiry, which is somewhat different. Now, his approval ratings may be slumping a little bit. But I think Michelle's point is right that, you know, the example of Nixon suggests that your party breaks with you when your approval gets down much lower than where Trump's is right now. And so far, this hasn't changed that. It may change it in the weeks to come, but we're not there yet. I mean, I think he'll be in significant trouble if he's consistently in the 30s. But I sort of have a rule of I never pay attention to one poll. So I'd want to see much more than that. Trump's approval rating has generally been hovering in the low 40s, which is so low that even a modest fall could create really big problems for him and transform the situation. But I take your point that the polling's not solidly against him at this point. Ross, can I ask you to channel some of the Senate Republicans, whether it's Ben Sass or Josh Hawley, who's been on our show, or Cory Gardner, not one of them in particular. But I think a whole bunch of them really are disgusted by Donald Trump, the human being. How is it that they justify to themselves, do you think, standing behind this person who all reporting suggests they don't respect or particularly like? What do they tell themselves about why they're not willing to end this and make Mike Pence, a man many of them respect more, the president of the United States? I mean, I think there are, the arguments would vary with the senator, but to channel at least one widespread perspective, which is shared by pundits as well and not only pro-Trump pundits, they think to themselves, 
look, our party was sort of overturned by this huge populist rebellion. There are similar populist rebellions happening all over the Western world. So Trump is a symptom. He's not a singular cause. And this kind of populism is built on a total distrust of the elite, not just sort of the liberal elite, but also the Republican Party elite, the conservative movement elite, every kind of elite. And when a revolt like this puts someone in power, if you push him out of office with another presidential election looming, it doesn't make the underlying populist derangement any better. It probably makes it worse and it sets the stage for Trump 2.0, Trump on steroids and so on. So it's better to let this play out. I think you have a number of prominent Republicans now who feel the same way that prominent Republicans did in 2016, which is that they expect Trump to lose the next election and they think it's much better to run things out that way than to, in their view, make the situation down the road that much worse. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about William Barr, the attorney general. My guess is we have some different opinions about William Barr, maybe even more different than we have about Donald Trump. So, Michelle, you wrote a column this week about the thorough corruption of William Barr, who is the attorney general, which post Watergate has had this tradition uh, of trying to be at least a little bit more separate from the president than other cabinet agencies. I'm not saying that every attorney general has fully lived up to that, but none of them, in my view, have behaved the way Barr has behaved. And so can you just make the case? about why what he is doing here is just so odious? Right. Well, there's two different parts, right? I mean, there's just the on-its-face outrageous circumstance that he has not recused himself from any involvement when he himself is a possible party to a criminal conspiracy, right? He himself is mentioned in the phone call that started all of this. There is no conceivable neutral legal standard in which he should not have recused himself, right? But he has simply not the tiniest inkling of respect for the basic professional norms of the legal profession. Number two is him gallivanting all over the world to get foreign intelligence services to help him undermine the foundation of the Mueller investigation and sort of put meat on the bones of what seems to me to be the craziest and most outlandish conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory, again, about the genesis of the Russia investigation, that it was some sort of conspiracy involving an internal bad actor in the Democratic Party and Ukraine and all sorts of other forces you know, I think that one what strikes me about Bill Barr is that unlike past Republicans, he's not like a Fox News producer. He's not somebody who's out there cynically manipulating the public by putting out propaganda. I mean, he is that. But he's also somebody who himself has been manipulated by propaganda, right? He's a Fox News viewer. He's all in in this kind of bizarro world conspiracy theory. And so it is now the foreign policy of the United States, even though it actually shouldn't be the attorney general conducting foreign policy, to subvert our relationships with foreign intelligence services to get them to back up this fixation of Donald Trump. I mean, it is so outrageous. It doesn't seem like there can be any sort of bonds of civic affection with the people who are propping this up and the people who think it's okay. Ross, 
you and a number of conservatives defended Barr by basically saying, look, there's nothing wrong with an attorney general getting involved in an investigation. This is completely different from the Ukraine call with the president. And I guess the problem I have with that is twofold. One, the level of involvement of an attorney general flying around the world, basically like a line prosecutor to get involved in this investigation that by no means is one of the more important investigations in the Justice Department. And two, it really at its core appears to be based at least partly and maybe wholly on fabrications meant to protect the president. And so I agree with you, there is a plausible way in which an attorney general would reach out to foreign governments and try to work with them that would be perfectly appropriate. But this ain't it. One, I wasn't arguing that everything Barr is doing is appropriate. I was just arguing that it is categorically different from the kind of transcript that we have of what Trump was doing vis-a-vis Biden and Ukraine. The critique of Barr would be, as you say, that he's getting involved in a line investigation inappropriately when an attorney general should be keeping his hands off. That's very, very different from Donald Trump arguably leveraging U.S. foreign policy and foreign aid in order to launch a foreign investigation of its political rival. They just seem like very different things. Two, I don't understand the claim that this is not an important investigation. The claim made against Donald Trump for several years was that he was a Manchurian candidate committing treason and working for Vladimir Putin. How can you then turn around and argue that the origins of that issue are not – it's just not an important – of course the Trump administration Ross, thinks it's important. Because, Ross, if you read the Mueller report, it basically tiptoes up to that conclusion, although it says it cannot prove criminal conspiracy. What you're just saying has in no way been disproved. The Mueller report does not tiptoe up to the conclusion that any of the claims in the Steele dossier and elsewhere about direct Trump – inner circle collaboration with Russian intelligence were true. It doesn't. It tiptoes up to the claim that Trump obstructed justice and it explicitly makes the claim that people in his orbit had contact with Russia, but it doesn't get you anywhere near those big Trump talking to the Russians before his campaign kind of allegations. It just doesn't. Well, I would say two things. First of all, as you know, the Mueller report doesn't actually even look at most of kind of Trump's financial dealings. The only financial dealings that it really does look at was Trump's continual series of lies about trying to get a Trump Tower built in Moscow as he was running this pro-Russia propaganda campaign. The Mueller report says basically that there was, you know, these 30 contacts between Trump's campaign and the Russians that Trump solicited Russian help, that Russian help was provided, that Trump's campaign used that Russian help when crafting their campaign strategy. And it has since been abundantly clear that Trump has taken all sorts of foreign policy steps that would not be any different than the steps he would take if he were actually trying to pay back the help he was given in becoming president in the first place. We also know now that he told the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office that he did not mind the Russian interference in the election on his behalf. So the fact that it did not live up to the absolute maximalist view, if none of this stuff with Ukraine had happened, it would be still the biggest scandal in American political history. It would still, in my view, prove that Trump is disloyal to this country and an illegitimate president. 
And again, I think it's kind of a propaganda coup of the right that they've been able to spin the Mueller report as an exoneration instead of an extraordinarily damning document that, thanks in part to the machinations of Bill Barr, has been quashed in a disinformation campaign. It hasn't been quashed. No, not quashed. The rollout that presented it as this anticlimactic exoneration shaped the information environment in which it was then very, very hard to accurately convey what was in it. What's interesting to me here is that as we've gone from talking about Ukraine to talking about Russia, to me, I feel like we're helping to make the case for a very narrow impeachment, which is the arguments about Russia. Michelle and I think they're a slam dunk. But Ross, I know you disagree. And the fact is the country has not been won over to Michelle's and my view on this. And there's a part of me that is really saddened by the idea that Donald Trump is unfit to be president and has violated his oath in so many different ways. The idea that Congress is going to impeach him with a narrow set of articles on Ukraine. And yet, the more I think about Mueller and all of these rabbit holes, the more I think that if your goal is is to weaken Trump, a narrow impeachment probably makes a lot more sense than a broad one. Michelle, do you disagree with that? No, not really. I mean, I think it's probably strategically wise because, again, one of the reasons that the Ukraine scandal has resonated much more than all of these other scandals is just because it is so clear cut and simple to understand. Given kind of the information environment in which we live, it is probably smart for them to proceed with a very quick, tight, focused impeachment that can get as many votes in the House as possible. Ross, you got the last word. Um, no, I think I think a narrow impeachment is probably the way to go. And I'll leave it there. OK, we will leave it there as well. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. We've had a heated couple weeks in national politics, so we're going to take a little break right now to touch on a different hot topic, air travel etiquette. After fights over armrests, traveling pets, and crying children, there is now a new battleground, the window shade. The Wall Street Journal calls it the latest airline passenger cabin conflict. New York Magazine says it's even harder to resolve than the endless battle over reclining seats. 
passengers are getting more aggressive about closing their window shades and about asking other passengers to do so too. It seems like a lot of people would rather spend a long flight looking at their phone or their tablet or their laptop without the bother of natural light. Fights over the window shades have prompted questions about whether the airlines need to get involved and set clear policies. I am on team Shades Up. With the exception of overnight flights, I would much rather have some daylight flowing into the cabin. On a recent nine-hour daytime flight, I couldn't believe that the shades were closed almost the entire time. I went like 30 hours without sunlight and felt groggy for the entire day afterwards. And I am curious, Ross and Michelle, where are you two? Shades up or shades down, and who should decide? So I have a lot of extremely strong feelings about air travel, which I think is one of the signal horrors of modern life, at least coach air travel. It's like the it's your one encounter with just like, we don't care if you're in pain. I basically think that window shade is at the total discretion of the person sitting next to the window. You are a window shade libertarian. Yes. Yeah, I think I'm a libertarian on this too. But there does seem to be more of a shades down consensus. And it seems to me that when you're in a window seat, you're cramped, but you have the power over the shade, right? (laughs) That seems to me to be sort of part of the weird landscape of the airline that I've gotten accustomed to living with. And it's weird to have there be a sort of demand for a consensus or a policy overall. I was going to say the thing that I feel like I wish the airlines would weigh in on more decisively. Um, so you guys know there was just this there was a story recently about a Japanese airline publishing baby maps, right? So that you can kind of avoid sitting next to a baby if you're the kind of person who can't stand small children. You know, on the one hand it seems like a sort of viciously antinatalist policy. On the other hand, I'm sort of for it because there's nothing worse when you're traveling with a baby than like people who keep glaring at you and like loudly sighing. But what I really wish is that they would publish maps of men or have female only sections because of the way that they assume that any space that you are not physically occupying belongs to them. So they always take both armrests and Airlines won't do anything about it. You know, so I have gone to a stewardess and kind of said the truly disgusting things that a man has said when I've asked him to please, like, move his elbow from in front of my chest. And they'll basically say there's nothing they can do about it. You know, they can maybe move me to a middle seat in the back of the plane. I wish that they that they had optional shades or something that you could clearly demarcate the space between the two seats, um, or even better, that there was a way to request, if you're a woman, to sit next to another woman. I mean, I I, so I have to reverse field here. So I just did this, you know, defense of the libertarian airline. But listening to Michelle, it has become crystal clear to me that airline travel is actually a perfect case against extreme libertarianism and social liberalism and the intersection thereof. And I need to fully embrace Michelle's argument and just repurpose it to socially conservative ends. I mean, I think you could make a partial defense of the male sex by saying, on average, men are bigger. We have longer legs. 
we're suffering more from sort of the squishing effect of airline travel, and that explains some of the sort of overspilling that Michelle is noting. But in general, yeah, the dominant mode on airlines is this is the state of nature. I've paid for my seat, and I'm going to do whatever I want in this zone. And what Michelle experiences as a woman, I experience primarily as a father of kids where, you know, we have three small children who are not obviously incredibly fun to fly with. And you stagger onto the plane and often the airline has failed to seat you together or done some other terrible thing. And again and again, you have situations where one of your kids doesn't want to sit next to a stranger. It's incredibly easy for this stranger to change their seat or to just do some mild thing to accommodate you. And you get this sort of like blank stare. It is this sort of perfect individualist society that is incredibly hostile to women and children. And so it's it's the tragedy of late modern libertarianism in a nutshell right there. I want to come back to the baby maps because the idea that you could look up online where babies are going to be on a plane and try to sit not near them, that sounds like a good idea to me. But mostly I think that adults just need to get much more comfortable with the idea of babies on planes because I'm always horrified when there is a baby crying and there's loud sighing. And it's almost always from a man, I would add. It is not that pleasant to listen to a crying baby, but it is much much, much more unpleasant, either A, to be a crying baby stuck inside an airline tube, or B, to be the parents of a crying baby trying to comfort that baby when you know that everyone around you is getting mad. And I think it's kind of insane that we've basically gotten to the point where you're allowed to complain about a tiny little human being who is upset on an airplane. But we also allow people to bring their pets onto planes, even though some people are allergic to the pets, so long as the people have lied and said that their pets are therapy pets. And 90 plus percent of them are, in fact, lying about it. Do you have stats? Is that is that definite? Uh... You know, you're, that's fair. You're calling me out on making up a statistic. <laughs> I just, I just don't want people who have therapy animals to be calling in. I mean, what would you, what would you guess? What percentage of animals on planes? And I want to clearly distinguish here: seeing eye dogs and a few other exceptions should all be allowed on planes. But therapy dogs, to me, is just like one of the great scams of 21st century life. Do you think I'm wrong about that? I, I mean, I don't. Maybe we don't want to go down that road. I just, I was curious. So let me just say, with that though. I guess you could make, as with Michelle's argument for sex-segregated planes, you could make an argument for the baby heat maps as a sort of ultimately pro-baby move, that if you could create a section of a plane that was like the family section, as a parent, I would much rather go into that section where parents have the sort of solidarity of the trenches, you know, where you get in and it's like, all right, everybody's got the Cheerios, everybody's got to switch seats here and there, it's all chaos, but you're all in it together, than the world of like one baby per six rows surrounded by hateful antinatalists that we have right now. <laughs> and, you know, and actually, just to expand on that a bit, I fly a lot with my kids, but I fly more on my own for work. And I would sit in that section when I'm by myself because I would usually rather sit next to someone with a crying baby than a man. <laughs> <laughs> of any hierarchy, men are at the bottom. 
I do think we've landed on something important here, which is flying should be less hostile to children. My kids aren't young anymore, but my signature experience flying with young kids was when I had my two sons on a cross-country flight. You know, a six-hour flight with two toddlers, right? It's, I mean, has time ever gone more slowly in my life than then? I don't know that it has. And I accidentally stumbled on the fact that the flight attendant was out with the beverage cart serving beverages. So I was in the back of the plane and my two and three-year-old sons discovered this empty space that was like uh, a little playground for them that they climbed in. And when the flight attendant got back, she gasped and she said, do you know how dirty it is in there? And I responded, do you know how miserable it is flying with toddlers? I will take any five minutes I can get. And I feel like that's an experience that parents have all the time. And mostly we just blame them for the fact that flying with kids is hard rather than trying to make their lives easier. So I fully sign on to the idea of a family section where parents and kids can sit. And um, also, um, Michelle, you can sit and there'll be fewer men. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we give you a suggestion meant to take your mind off of both politics and airline travel. Ross, this week is your turn. What do you have for us? So the show is Unbelievable, which is a Netflix limited series about a serial rapist who went uncaught for many years. It's a true story and it's based on terrific reporting by ProPublica and the Marshall Project on this investigation and these women's stories. And the performances are the two really amazing ones are by Merritt Weaver, who plays one of the detectives who ultimately cracks the case, and Caitlin Deaver, who plays one of the initial victims who, as the title of the show suggests, is not believed by her local police department and ends up in sort of a hell of being accused of making false accusations and losing her status in a foster home and all kinds of terrible things. Um, And the performances are better than the show because I think the show sometimes feels a little too much like a kind of old lifetime movie of the week message movie where characters are sort of explaining how bad rape is in ways that are admirable but don't seem that realistic as dialogue. But the performances are so great that it's worth sticking through some of the weaknesses of the script. Okay, well, you sold. I mean, I've been meaning to watch that anyway, but it's definitely up next. No, I mean, I think I think the show is. It certainly is close to many of Michelle's interests, and I mean, the story itself is harrowing and horrifying and basically true. I think you both may have a higher tolerance for darkness in your movie and TV watching than I do, because while it sounds extremely well done. I just find it really hard to get motivated to watch a a long series of uh, TV about something as dark as this. I mean, I guess all I'd say is that in this this series, I mean, it's a show about where a form of justice is done in the end. And it's a little different from some of the other darkest timeline shows that are on TV. Well, what's the recommendation again, Ross? The recommendation is... Unbelievable, a TV show on Netflix, and particularly two of the lead performances by Merritt Weaver and Caitlin Deaver. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts, you can leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. 
And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show is produced by Kristen Schwab for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. Um, in a bit of trivia, I have to tell you both that I went to the same high school as both William Barr and Roy Cohn. How about that? It is a tiny world. <laughs>